We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From John 17. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that you may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm the other pastor here. And uh, before we dive into the sermon today, would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you not only speak to us and give us your words, but that you even give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see you. And so we pray that you would do that this morning. Uh, because, because if it were not for your spirit who searches us and knows us, knows exactly what we are going through, exactly what we need to hear, who speaks to us by name and calls us out of whatever is preventing us from diving deeper into you, Lord, uh, this would be fruitless. There's, this would be a fruitless exercise. So we, we pray that you bring your spirit to bear on our hearts, Lord, that you would convince us in the places where we are unconvinced, that you would give us hope where we're feeling despair, and Lord, that you would replace our complaints with gratitude, all that Jesus would be magnified. We pray this in his name. Amen. Over the past uh, several weeks, we've been working through this sermon series, What is a Christian? And in this sermon series, we've been exploring a lot of, well, addressing some of the misconceptions that we have about a Christian. There are so many ideas, uh, so many objections, so many misconceptions about what a Christian is. Is a Christian somebody with conservative values? Is a Christian somebody with progressive values? Is a Christian a good person? Is a Christian somebody who is intolerant or narrow-minded? Is a, a Christian somebody who's had a mystical experience 
with God. Well, we've been stripping away all these misconceptions and trying to get to the core of what God teaches us from the Bible about what it means to be a Christian. And so we looked in the first week on how a Christian is someone who is loved by God. At the very essence of Christianity is the unconditional love of God that transforms us completely, that the love of God that changes everything. That was the first week. In the second week, we looked at how the love of God turns us into people who love Jesus. That was the second sermon. And then in the third sermon, we looked at how the love of God changes us to love the church. And so today we're going to be wrapping up this sermon series by looking at how the love of God changes us to love the world. So what does that mean, to love the world? Have you ever seen these lists that are published every year, best places to live in the United States or best places to live in the world? And if you've seen these lists, you know that uh, the the, the determining factor for the cities that make that list is that they're comfortable, there's lots of jobs, they usually have great schools, it helps if they're affordable, which means that there aren't too many cities in the Bay Area that make that list anymore. Uh, And it helps if there's some culture, good food, good music, uh, if there's fun things to do. When we talk about loving the places that we live, What we usually mean is that we love what we can do where we live. We love the conveniences of the cities where we live. We love the comforts and the security that we're able to enjoy in the places that we live. Uh, We we value the lifestyle that we can have in the cities that we live in. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's also nothing distinctly Christian about loving the good life. So in today's passage, Jesus is going to challenge our ideas about loving where we live, loving our city, loving the world. And he's going to do that in this pretty meaty passage. And this is just part of a longer passage. Today's passage is the last section of John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the Bible. It's all just one long prayer. It's also the last prayer that Jesus prayed. This is Jesus praying right before he is arrested, right before he's convicted, right before he's crucified, right before he dies. And so what is on Jesus' mind as he prays one last time with his disciples? Well, at the end of this prayer, in the last few verses of this prayer, what's on his mind is the world, love for the world. And he's going to show us three aspects of what a Christian's love for the world should look like. Number one, we're going to look at how Jesus prays for a responsible love. Number two, we're going to look at how Jesus prays for a inviting love. And number three, we're going to look at how Jesus prays for a sacrificial love. So let's start with the first thing that Jesus prays for, a responsible love. Jesus starts today's passage in verse 18 by praying 
about he, how he sent his disciples into the world. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, Jesus says to his Father in heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus sent his disciples into the world? It's kind of a weird and curious thing for him to pray, isn't it? His disciples are already in the world. It's not like they are in outer space and he's going to send them into the world. What does it mean that Jesus sends his disciples into the world? Well, it obviously means more than they, the fact that they are located in the world. Jesus is praying that the world would be more than just a home to his disciples. It would be their responsibility. And uh, this is really clear, especially when you look at this theme of the relationship that humanity is called to have with the world from the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, and he looks at all of his creation, and he says it is good, which means that creation is just the way he imagined it. It's perfect. It's paradise. And then what he does next The very first thing that God does is he goes to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and he tells them to fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue is kind of a a weird word. Uh, Are they going to wrestle the word? Are they going to put it into, you know, get the world to tap out? This is just a word that God is using to describe the way that Adam and Eve were to be responsible for the world. They were responsible for the world's flourishing. In chapter 2, verse 15, God says something similar. He says, tells Adam to work the garden and to take care of it. Now, just think about this. The world is perfect, and God is commanding humanity to improve it. Does that blow your mind? Eden, the Garden of Eden, the world paradise was perfect And yet God loved the world so much, and God loved humanity so much that he placed humanity in the world to make it even better. Eden, in other words, even though it was paradise, was not a resort. Adam and Eve didn't just lounge in Eden while the animals served them hand and foot. Eden, Eden was not a Disney movie. Uh, Eden was not a tourist's paradise. Eden was a servant's paradise. It was a place where humanity lacked for nothing, where they had more than enough to to use all the faculties of their imagination and creativity and skill to improve upon perfection. See, love takes responsibility, and this is what God called humanity to do from the very beginning, to take responsibility of all of his creation, of all of the world. And this is what we are all wired for. We are wired for responsibility because we are wired for love. Put love in paradise and love will try to make paradise better. Put love next to someone who is hurting and love will do everything within its power to help that person and to make sure that they are better because love takes responsibility. Last, yesterday, um, some of you may have seen this in the news at the Rockridge BART station. There was a commemoration of the, the Oakland Hills fire, the tunnel fire back in 91. 
this was a devastating fire. 30 years ago, a massive wildfire in the Berkeley and Oakland Hills that destroyed over 3,000 structures, left over 5,000 people homeless, took the lives of 25 people and countless others who were severely injured. Uh, w when this story came on my radar, I started looking at some old footage. I remember I was living just over the hill and I could see the smoke from Oakland. I could smell it. It was the, the entire Bay Area was blanketed in smoke during that fire. And there's this footage um, on, on ABC News of a firefighter who encounters a man who is standing on the roof with his garden hose and he's hosing down the roof. And the firefighter yells out, do you own this? And you can't really quite make out what the guy is saying. He tries to, I think, say no, because he thinks that, that if he says no, the firefighter is going to let him just hose down the roof. And this is what the firefighter yells at him. He says, get the bleep down. The roof is going to explode. There is nothing you can do. And all you're doing is knocking the water pressure down. Now, this, this man on the roof, watering down his roof, uh, while his entire neighborhood is blanketed with smoke, there's, there's fires popping up just all over the street. This, this, this man was clearly misguided in what he was doing, but no one could fault him for not taking responsibility for his house. This was a person who took responsibility for his home. When his home was under the threat of fire, he took his house into his own hands, his life into his own hands, got up on the roof, got a hose, and tried to hose it down. So here's the question this morning that God wants to ask all of us. Have you been sent into the world or do you just live here? Do you love the world? Or do you just love what the world can give you? Are you responsible for the world? Or are you just using the world? When you see the problems of the world, when you see things like poverty or crime or homelessness, when you see things like racism or chauvinism or homophobia, when you see injustice in the world, do you blame other people or do you say, my bad, this is on me, I am responsible? In the early 1900s, uh, the Times in London ran this story and they, they asked all these famous authors what they thought the most important problem facing the world was in their time. And a, a writer named G.K. Chesterton, a Christian writer, responded with a two-word essay, I am. And what Chesterton was doing here was not just, you know, putting his guilt on display, what Chesterton was doing is putting his love on display. This was not just a declaration of guilt, a mea culpa, it was a declaration of love because you can't take responsibility for something that you don't love. And so the reason why it's so challenging, I, it's hard for me to say that I take responsibility for my world, I do not. I, there are too many times where I just blame other people for the world's problems. The reason why it's so hard to do that is because, not, not because the problems of the world are so big, but because my love is so small. 
because love takes responsibility. In verse 18, Jesus prays, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus loves the world. Jesus takes responsibility of the world. He, he's praying to his father, I know that I don't just live here. Father, you sent me into this world. I am here to take responsibility for all its problems. And the reason Jesus is able to do that is not because of his divinity, not because he is all powerful, but because of his humanity. Because this is a responsibility that God gave to humanity. And so as a complete and full human being, Jesus prays, Father, you have sent me. I am sent here. I don't just live here. The problems of this world are on me. Earlier in the book of John, John writes, for God so loved the world that he what? He sent his one and only son that whoever should believe in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. There's good news, kind of heavy, but there's good news because when you see how God sent his one and only son into the world, you realize that no matter how much our love fails, God's love does not. And so our failure, our limitations, our selfishness, our sin does not have the final word in the future of this world, God does. God in his infinite and gracious love, which is why Jesus' message to the world is the most inviting message that anyone could ever receive. This brings us to the second thing we want to look at in today's passage, an inviting love. Jesus prays for an inviting love. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 20. Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus is praying, my disciples have a message. I've given them a message. I've sent them with a message. They are going to give my message to the world. And when that happens, people are going to believe in me. Jesus is praying for future disciples, people who don't even exist yet, people who have not even been born. He's praying for people like you and me. And he's praying that when they hear Jesus' message, it will be inviting, and they will believe, and then something incredible will happen. This message will unify people in a way that nothing in this world can. We live in a culture that frowns upon talking about religion. It's impolite to talk about religion with friends or colleagues or strangers. Uh, it, it seems divisive to even bring the subject of religion up, and it definitely seems arrogant to claim that your religion is correct or true and that other religions are not. Talking about religion seems inherently divisive and arrogant and intolerant. So isn't it better to just keep your faith to yourself? That's a question I've asked a lot throughout my life. I used to be a public high school teacher, and uh, I, 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 there were so many times, pretty much all the time, where I felt like I probably should keep my faith to myself. But here's the thing. What if Jesus is the only one who can actually bring us together? 
What if the message of Jesus is not divisive, but actually the only truly inclusive message that we can encounter in the world? What if Jesus is the only one who is able to truly reconcile and celebrate all of our differences? Back in the 60s, Malcolm X, who at the time opposed integration, famously said, uh, it's just like, he's talking about integration, it's just like when you got some coffee that's too black, which means that it's too strong. So what do you do? You integrate, with, integrate it with cream. You make it weak. But if you pour too much cream in it, you won't even know you ever had coffee. He says it used to be hot. It becomes cool. It used to be strong. It becomes weak. It used to wake you up. Now it puts you to sleep. Malcolm X had a way with words, and uh, he used this illustration so many different times. I've heard him use it in interviews and in speeches. What's he talking about here? Malcolm X is talking about the, the danger, a legitimate danger in integration. What if integration is not really about celebrating unity or diversity, but just making everybody the same? What if in the name of integration, you lose your culture, you lose your identity, you lose your race? Is that really unifying? He didn't want that. He didn't want to lose his culture. He didn't want to lose his identity. He definitely did not want to lose his blackness. But when you look at this prayer, notice that Jesus grounds our unity in the unity of the Trinity. He says, as you and I, Father, are one, may they be one. Now, the interesting thing about the Trinity is that if you lose sight of the fact that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are totally different from one another, and yet completely unified, then you have heresy. If you try to say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are basically the same, and you downplay their differences, that's heresy. If you, if you say that they're so completely different, there's no unity, that's heresy. But it, when you hold the two in balance, completely different, completely distinct, yet completely one, that is unity. And that's the picture of unity that God gives us in himself, and it's the picture of unity that God gives us for humanity. In Revelation chapter 7, Jesus, uh, John, the same author of the gospel according to John, John has this vision of heaven, and in this picture of heaven, he sees a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And here's something to think about. In heaven, God does not erase race or nationality or language or culture. The, the picture of heaven, the picture of human civilization as it is meant to be is diverse. Jesus doesn't erase our differences. He invites our differences. In fact, you can make the case that Christianity is the only historical, historically global religion in the world. Every other world religion is geographically contained. If you look at the demographics, 96% uh, of Muslims live in the Middle East or in Africa or South Asia. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. What about Christianity? Well, 25% of Christians live in Central and South America. 
Another 25% of Christians live in Europe. Another 25% of Christians live in Sub-Saharan Africa. 13% of Christians live in Asia. Only 12% of Christians in the world live in North America. No single place in the world can claim Christianity as their own. No country, no continent can say Christianity belongs to us. That's our religion. No other religion can say that. Dr. Laman Sena, uh, who is a Gambian professor who used to teach at Yale Divinity School, he taught the history of African Christianity. Uh, he wrote this book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And he makes this claim that Christianity is the one religion that historically belongs to the entire world. And he points out that uh, it, it, that, that doesn't mean that it's always been that way or that Christianity is always inviting. We have a complicated history and le legacy, one that it's important for Christians and churches to own. For example, he talks about how the time of imperialism and colonialism when evangelism went hand in hand with empire building that the church in the world, the global church, shrank. But once that era ended, and the key here, he says, is when people started receiving the Bible in their own language. And he talks about this specifically in Africa. The old school of evangelism was teaching Africans to become more Western. But once Africans got the Bible in their own language, there was an explosion of conversion and faith. And listen to what he says. He writes, Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. We have a complicated history and legacy, just like any other religion, any other institution in the world, but the love of Jesus, the heart of Christianity is not divisive, it is inviting because Jesus does not demand that you need to change in order to belong. He invites you to belong before you change, and in fact, he makes you and transforms you not to become like everyone else, but, but, but to become more truly who you were meant to be. And this is why we are so committed as a church to being a place where you can belong before you believe. This is why we have a questioning Christianity class. Because we know that belonging is not something that you earn. It's a gift that God has given to all of us and he's called us to give to one another. It's because we've been convinced that the gospel is the most inviting message ever given to humanity. And so every Sunday at Resurrection Oakland is a good Sunday to bring a friend to church. Every Sunday is a good Sunday to visit, even if you are unconvinced of the claims of Christianity. So here's the question for all of us this morning. Is your love inviting? Do you only love people when it's easy to love them, when it's familiar and when it's comfortable? Or do you invite people into your life even when you don't really get them? Even when you actually have serious disagreements with them, political disagreements, religious disagreements, even when your personalities don't jibe, even when you don't understand their culture? 
How uncomfortable are you willing to become in order to love the world, in order to love your neighbor, in order to love others? Do you have an inviting love or do you have an insular love? Loving outside of your comfort zone is hard, but this is the true measure of Christian love. The true measure of Christian love is not how many people you can love, it's how far your love is willing to go outside of your comfort zone. Christian love is hard, and it requires sacrifice. So we're going to close with this last point. Jesus prays for a sacrificial love. There's this great scene in the, the novel, The Brothers Karamazov, and uh, it, it illustrates the challenge of love so poignantly. There's a wealthy woman who's talking to a monk, and she tells this monk, you know, you probably didn't know this about me, but I've always dreamt of devoting my life to helping people and alleviating suffering. Uh, you know, I've thought about selling all my possessions and using that money to help others. I've thought about be becoming a nun and devoting my life to helping the poor. Uh, and then she says, but I've wondered, could I endure such a life for long? She goes on to talk about all the ways that this could go sideways. She says, what if people don't appreciate me? What if people are rude? What if people are not grateful? What if they complain after all that I've done? I don't think I could bear that. And this is what the monk says to this woman. The monk replies, love in action is harsh and a, a harsh and dreadful thing compared with the love of dreams. Love in action, love in the real world, real love, is a harsh and brutal thing, a dreadful thing compared to the love of dreams. And this is especially true when love pursues diversity. If you are in a truly diverse place, there are gonna be jokes that go over your head and you don't understand. Uh, you are going to get offended and you are going to be offensive. You will say something culturally insensitive. It's not a question of if, but when. That is going to happen. Uh, there will be times where you mispronounce someone's name. There will be times where you mistake people for other people. I can't tell you how many times I've been mistaken for other Asians that I've never met. That's gonna happen, right? Now. Diversity, love in the real world, love that goes outside of our comfort zone, it takes sacrifice, it's hard, it's challenging, sometimes it's humiliating. It puts you in a very vulnerable place. So why would anyone pursue these things when it's so hard? Well, we get our answer in verse 19 and then in the last part of today's passage. In verse 19, Jesus prays, for them I sanctify myself. That word sanctify means to make holy. Jesus say, is saying, I am now making myself holy. What does Jesus mean? Hasn't he always been holy? He's been holy since eternity past, even before he became human, even before he was born. So how, in what sense, is Jesus making himself holy? Well, that word holiness, it just means to set something apart for a special purpose. And so, you know, you can read a book for entertainment, 
And that's fun, but it doesn't have any special meaning or purpose. Or you could read a medical book to understand your dad's cancer. That's a more specific purpose. It's set apart. It's more meaningful. There is, if you're reading a medical book, whether you're a doctor or not, and especially if you're not, and you're trying to understand your dad's cancer, that book is going to feel sacred to you. It's going to feel holy to you. It's going to feel like a holy act. You're setting that act apart for a special purpose. And so when Jesus says, I now consecrate, Father, I consecrate myself for them, what is Jesus saying? He's talking about the cross. He's saying, I am going to consecrate myself, set myself apart for a new purpose, something that I have never done before and will never be done again. I will give my life for the world on the cross. I will sacrifice my life on the cross for the world. Jesus is praying about the holiness of God's grace. And then he goes and continues to pray that they too may be truly sanctified. And so what's Jesus praying now? He's praying about the holiness of gratitude. See, Jesus' death was not meaningless. It was holy. And because it was holy, it makes us holy. But not in the same way that Jesus is holy. Because we can't save the world. We can't change the world. All we can do is respond to God's grace with gratitude. Holy gratitude. The Christian life is a life dedicating everything that we are to God as one big thank you. It's not a way to get God's attention. It's not a way to get God's approval. It's not even a way to make the world better. It's simply a way to say thank you. Lord, how do you love me this way? Why would you think so much of me? Who am I that you would give your one and only son for me? Thank you. I want to devote and set apart my entire life for you. I want to love what you love. I want to take responsibility over the things that you have taken responsibility over. I want to follow you and serve you. Thank you. Holy gratitude. When you see how Jesus has dedicated his life, his death, his resurrection for you, it will make you want to dedicate your life to him. This is why what we did yesterday at MLK Elementary is so amazing. It was a, some of you, uh, there's a lot of, there's so much to celebrate about what happened. You saw the picture. It was, it was such, I was blown away by all the people, all the work that we accomplished. Like Brent said, that we had 60 people there. We had 10 different projects going on. Um, and, uh, you know, countless hours going into preparing this day. Um, but the other side of this story, though, what makes this so huge is that, and, and Brent alluded to this, and that day was an answered prayer. Because, you know, we've been praying as a church to develop a relationship with the school that we can serve. We have been praying and we continue to pray as a church for new opportunities and ways to love and serve Oakland because that's the way that we say thank you to God for his grace. And you may be wondering, well, that's great, but what difference does any of this make? How much of a difference? Well, I think it's Mr. Henderson, who's the community outreach coordinator at MLK, told us he's going to be sending some pictures to us of the children when they see the play yard. So I think it's going to make an impact. 
But I can understand how anyone might wonder, well, when you consider all the problems of Oakland or all the problems of the world, what does anything that we do actually accomplish? And again, Jesus closes his prayer by showing us that all he calls us to do is not to change the world, but to say thank you to him. Because Jesus is the one that God sent to save the world, to change the world, and to make all things new. And so if you look at the last um, two verses here, uh, 24, uh, three verses, 24 through uh, 26, listen to what Jesus says. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is praying. Uh, he's been praying for the future throughout this passage, and he's praying, help, help these people to see that they are united with me in glory. They're already there in glory because I am. And so there is a glory that they can't see with their eyes, but it exists, and help them to see that as they see me. They are already there. But then he goes on to say, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Jesus is realizing they're united to me in glory and they're going to see that with their eyes one day. And I pray, Father, that you keep them. But for now, while they are in the world, while the problems of the world seem overwhelming, when, it, when we, we reach these points where we ask, is anything that we're doing making a difference, Jesus wants them to see that he is with them. Jesus is praying about the already but not yet aspect of the Christian life. We are already with Jesus in glory because he's risen from the dead. He is in heaven and he's coming again soon and very soon to make all things new. But at the same time, we're in this world with all its brokenness, trying to take responsibility for things that are way too big for any of us. And our hope, our hope is not in ourselves, it's hope in Jesus. Our hope is not in the journey, but in our destination. I'll close with this. Several years ago, um, I met this family at the airport we were both headed to Orange County, and it was very clear this family was headed to Disneyland. And it was so clear, because this little girl, she must have been about four years old, she had her Mickey ears on, she had her princess costume on, she had like her, her Mickey luggage, and uh, you didn't, no one had to ask her, where are you going? You know? But if you did, she would, her face would, would light up and she would talk about Disneyland, how she's going to Disneyland, and then she would tell you all the things she was gonna do when she got there, and she would tell you all the characters she was gonna meet and all the treats she was gonna eat. That little girl was already but not yet in Disneyland, right? This table, this table, is Jesus' invitation for you to live your life already but not yet in glory. What this table represents is the body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus shed for you. And what this bread and this cup do 
is they unite you to the one who is already in glory, who is coming again to make all things new. What that means is that what's happening in your life, what's happening in your city, what's happening in the world cannot and will not have the final word in your life. Jesus will. You are already but not yet in glory. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Taste and see of the Lord's goodness here at this table. And if you have not done that, you can do it today. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks and took the bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, not just the great example, not just the great human being or humanitarian, but the great Savior. And we thank you, Lord, that you sent him into this world because you love us and you love this world. Oh God, we thank you that your imagination for salvation and redemption is far more inviting and far more gracious and generous and loving than we could ever dream. And so God, we pray that you would encourage our hearts as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, that you would build up our faith and that you would give us strength and endurance to love response, with responsibility over your world, over your creation, and for people in it, that, that, that we would live with a love that is inviting, that we would live with a sacrificial love, all as one big thank you to you, the God who has given us above and beyond anything that we need or could imagine. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.